previously on The Score, Behind the Headlines. So you have a state expert who's testifying that there's blood in the car in this case. And and this was kind of the early days of DNA and forensic evidence, uh, when really it was kind of like, I think a lot of juries and just American citizens were kind of shocked by the idea, like, oh, scientifically, there's no way to get around this evidence. Like, we, we hadn't really seen the problems with forensics that would later crop up get publicized as much. If a state expert comes up there and says, oh, yeah, there's blood in the car, of course, the jury's going to be like, okay, there must be blood in the car, which helps the prosecution's uh, version of the case or theory. But the fact that then later you find out that there's such rampant problems and errors at this particular state lab and with the state agency is incredibly shocking. Welcome to The Score Behind the Headlines, Episode 5, Drugs, Lies, and Conspiracy Theories. Behind the Headlines is an investigative podcast from 670 The Score. In Season 1, we're examining the 1993 murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. I'm Julie DeCaro with executive producer Tony Gill. When we first set out to do this podcast, we decided that, above all, we wanted to be respectful of James Jordan's legacy and of the Jordan family. We've tried to present the story of Jordan's murder in a way that's fair to everyone involved, without agenda, straight up the middle. All of that aside, there's no question that the conspiracy theories surrounding James Jordan murder and how they might be tied to his son, Michael, are a huge part of the way the public has absorbed and digested the case— So rather than just ignoring them and being accused of contributing to some kind of cover-up, we thought we'd talk about it. And later in the episode, we'll take some of your questions about the evidence we've discussed so far and where the case stands now. To understand why so many people believe the murder of James Jordan was part of a broader conspiracy, you have to start with Michael Jordan's retirement from the NBA following his father's death in 1993. From the beginning, there have been those who believe that Michael was forced to retire from the NBA due to an ongoing investigation into his now notorious gambling debts. So yes, Michael Jordan was seen gambling in Atlantic City in 1993, the night before a playoff game against the Knicks. Yes, in that same year, he admitted to having to cover $57,000 in gambling losses. And yes, author Richard Esquinas claims that he won $1.25 million from Jordan on the golf course. Jordan's competitiveness on and off the court is as legendary as his drive to the basket. In later years, Jordan would say that he made reckless decisions when it came to gambling. And former NBA commissioner David Stern has denied repeatedly that Michael Jordan's first retirement was actually a veiled suspension. But still, the rumors about Jordan's first retirement have persisted for 20 years. When James Jordan's body was discovered in Gum Swamp in 1993, people had already been talking about Michael's gambling debts for some time. And when many of the evidentiary problems we've discussed in this podcast came to light, well, it was probably natural for people to make the leap from random murder to not-so-random murder. We didn't want to go over all the different conspiracy theories about what happened to James Jordan. We just wanted to discuss the main one. So the vague conspiracy theory about James Jordan's murder goes like this. Michael owed a fortune in gambling debts to unsavory characters, to say the least. In order to punish Michael for not paying up, 
said unsavory characters murdered James Jordan in Lumberton, North Carolina in July of 1993. But is there any evidence aside from the speculation about Michael Jordan's gambling debts to connect the gambling world to James Jordan's murder? Here's Scott Rapp, who you've heard many times since episode two. I think it's important for people to remember that Michael at the time was being investigated by the National Basketball Association, that there were checks, cashier's checks. Michael had written in amounts $57,000, $108,000, you know, to guys who, again, he claimed were gambling buddies, and these were gambling debts, and given Michael's gambling history, that's believable, but these were guys, one of them had been murdered already, the other one was had been convicted, was a bail bondsman, and allegedly a cocaine dealer, and Robinson County is notorious. There were plenty of reasons to go down there as a reporter and try and contextualize this murder. Here's Scott's words he reported in his 1994 story for GQ. He retired while the NBA was investigating for the second time in two years. His gambling activities and friendships with assorted North Carolina hustlers and thugs, including men with bulk cocaine connections. In October 1992, after lying about a $57,000 cashier's check he'd given to a Charlotte man named James Slim Bowler, a previously convicted cocaine dealer on trial at the time for conspiracy to distribute cocaine and laundering drug money for a major Charlotte drug ring, Michael was subpoenaed and forced to testify that the money had been a debt for a three-day golf and poker weekend at Hilton Head, South Carolina. Before that, in February 1992, $108,000 in cashier's checks from Michael turned up in a briefcase of yet another of his Hilton Head gambling buddies, Eddie Dow, who had been murdered earlier that month. Dow was a Charlotte Bales bondsman and, according to the testimony at Bowler's trial, a coke dealer. Dow's brother and his attorney both said that Jordan's checks were drawn to pay off another weekend a gambling loss. Michael refused to comment, but testified in court that during these long weekends of poker, golf, and dice, there had never been any talk or use of drugs. How often, he was asked in court, did he go on these outings with these men? Two or three times a year since 1987, he said. The NBA conducted a hasty investigation, and Michael Jordan himself was summoned to New York City in March 1992 to explain the situation at league headquarters. Commissioner David Stern listened carefully, sifted through all the evidence, and warned him to be more careful about his associates. The second investigation began in June 1993 after Michael allegedly ran up over a million dollars more in gambling losses to a San Diego businessman, ended quietly two days after he retired. Is there some evidence that Michael Jordan was actually being investigated by the NBA for his gambling debts and that he may sometimes hung around the questionable figures from the gambling world? Depending on who you believe, yes. But how do we get from there to the mob had James Jordan murdered over Michael's gambling debts? By 1993, Michael Jordan had already earned more than $16 million just in his player contract alone. That doesn't even take into account his groundbreaking 1988 deal with Nike, which paid him $7 million over five years, plus 5% of every pair of Air Jordans sold. By 1991, Air Jordans were earning $200 million a year for Nike, netting Michael $10 million per year on his commissions alone. 
Jordan also had multi-million dollar endorsement deals with Ballpark Franks. Coke later swapped for Gatorade in the infamous Be Like Mike campaign, Chevrolet, and Wilson basketballs. The point is that in 1993, Michael Jordan had more than enough cash on hand to cover his gambling debts. Though if you believe what Richard Esquinas wrote in his book, it wasn't always easy to get Mike to pay up. Today, Michael Jordan is worth more than a billion dollars, earning more than a hundred million per year today as a result of his endorsement deals and investments. Here's the Washington Post's Cal Swenson on the various conspiracy theories. I mean, I grew up actually thinking those, you know, I grew up with a vague knowledge, you know, and as a, like a, a big NBA fan, I grew up with a vague knowledge that Jordan's dad had been killed. And I always assumed that it, it was in some way tied to Michael Jordan, whether James Jordan was targeted because of who he was, or it had something to do with his alleged gambling. I always just assumed that. And then honestly, just, just sitting down with the court records in this case, I realized that I was completely wrong. I, I, when you actually get into the, the, the weeds of what happened and how the investigation played out and what is alleged, I mean, the, the conspiracy theories seem, you know, just like that, like kind of ridiculous. Like what you had here was a murder that uh, was very improperly investigated. And now we have possibly, you know, an innocent person in jail. There are also a couple of other weird details about the James Jordan murder that we haven't mentioned yet, and now's probably a good time to take a look at them. Back in 1994, after Daniel Green and Larry Demery had been arrested, but before their trial began, one of their defense lawyers, the story didn't identify which lawyer, suggested that James Jordan had faked his own death in order to avoid gambling debts and a paternity lawsuit, leading to a bizarre article in the Orlando Sentinel, where former neighbors set forth their theories that James Jordan was still alive. That story went on to say that James Jordan's credit cards show unusual activity and that Jordan's company, JVL Enterprises, owed the Internal Revenue Service more than $40,000 in unpaid employee taxes and penalties, and that Jordan was involved in gambling to excess and beyond his means. Then there's the report that Dolores Jordan, Michael's mother, said she spoke with James Jordan on July 26th, three days after the prosecution said he was murdered by Larry Demery and Daniel Green. Though Dolores Jordan said she didn't know where her husband was calling from, she believed he was fine. And then there's a story that a convenience clerk in Winnebago, North Carolina, outside of Wilmington, told police that on July 26th or 27th, James Jordan, Larry Demery, and Daniel Green had stopped in the store and that she actually spoke with James Jordan. She said she remembered specifically because of the gold trim on Jordan's car. And a bread truck driver who was making a delivery to the store at the same time also recalled seeing the three men there. Then there was the rumor making the rounds in Lumberton that two men, who didn't match the descriptions of Daniel Green and Larry Demery, were seen running from a red Lexus on the morning James Jordan was allegedly murdered. So what do we make of all the pieces of the puzzle that don't seem to fit the narrative of James Jordan's murder? At this point, we may never get the answers. But we do have some answers, and we know that you guys have questions, so we've decided to spend part of this episode answering them as best we can. First up, James has a multi-part question about the case. 
first, he wants to know why Cumberland County, South Carolina, where James Jordan's body was initially found, didn't call in any other resources like the SBI in handling James Jordan's body when it was first discovered. If you remember back to episode one, Tony, there was um, they had to cremate the body because they didn't have a refrigeration unit. And at the time they got the body, it had already been in the swamp, in the sun for like 30 days. Yeah, it was a very, very, um, I mean, when you, when you look at TV shows, like, I'm a big fan of Law & Order. Me too. Um, so there's a lot of, like, details and stuff, you know, in terms of how that process is supposed to go in order to save as much so you can find out what happened to that body. In this case, none of that happened in the in the in the James Jordan case. Not to laugh or anything, but it, it's just the the incompetence to that level. Like they just thought it was just a random dead body, right? Enough. It wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been uh, when it was just another dead body to them. And yeah. considering that the guy was that was only his part time job, right? He ran a construction company <laughs> right. the rest of the time. This wasn't even his main job. <laughs> so it, it just goes to anything. He's like, oh, why are the refs, you know, messing up so bad? They're only getting paid part-time. Right. Like, if, if you pay somebody part-time, that they're not going to take that job as seriously as they should. Well, and remember, Lumberton is in Robeson County, North Carolina, which is one of the poorest counties. I think mm-hmm. it is the poorest county in North Carolina. And Cumberland County is right next door. So I'm imagining that that's not a real wealthy county either. Uh-huh. And then they just had a random dead guy. It wasn't until they found out it was James Jordan that they started to kind of like actually oh, care. Yeah. yeah, I mean, until then it was just like, oh, dead dude, and he smells real bad, so let's cremate him. And and one of the things James brought up too was that, um, you know, he said he, you know, he had all this dental work, and we talked about that in the first episode mm-hmm. that that was their first clue that this might have been somebody, and they actually preserved his jaw with all that expensive dental work in it so that they could try to identify him later. Yeah, and it, it, it you can't you can't, once you have already done a once a job is done a certain way you can't go back and change it it really once they notice that okay this might be a person i think in their minds like wow like we haven't been doing this correctly for years nope and it, it took a, a a person of a fame like james jordan for the entire county to realize our whole system is is messed up um, and even though they te- the the state and the prosecution technically technically won um, the uh, the case, we will probably never really truly find out uh, what we should have known if they would have taken this seriously, um, and this their procedures were were fine tuned uh, because it, it was too late by then. Yeah, and I think if they had known right off the bat this was Michael Jordan's father, they might have called in the State Bureau of mm-hmm. Investigation or people that had much more experience in handling this kind of thing. But they didn't. And so, you know, for all they knew, it was some, like, hobo, you know, and they just, it, you know, right. draped over a branch. And so, whatever, here's, you know, like I said, random dead well, guy. And it yeah, just didn't matter. But still, it's like, you know, it, do we do we disrespect the dead like that? Like, well, just in general? Should we or do we? Both. We do. Like should we should we take that more seriously? We like should. if, I mean that's still a human being. Yes, that's still a person. You may not have known that person. That person may not have done anything, quote unquote, special, or noteworthy, or noteworthy, or uh, famous. But it's still a human being. That was still a life. That was still someone's child. That was still someone's relative. 
Um, well, I think that, too, that, you know, the fact that he had been there for so long, mm-hmm. um, he'd been there for, what, like three weeks before somebody found um, him in that mm-hmm. swamp in the North Carolina sun in the summer. I mean, and then the fact that there was nobody reported missing that fit the description at the time, they probably thought there was nobody looking for him. You yeah. know, everything that could have gone wrong with this case kind of went wrong. Uh, nobody reported him missing. His body wasn't found until, you know, weeks later. Uh, the temperature, like you just mentioned, uh, the procedures of of the county, like everything that literally could have went wrong in this case went wrong. Uh, and, th- and now we have all these, you know, conspiracies and stuff that we're going to get into, you know, uh, in a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it was it was certainly a just kind of like a, a like a like a crap load of mess going on. Yeah. Um, second, James wants to know if the Jordan family provided DNA samples or cooperated in any way after the prosecution destroyed the single vial of James Jordan's blood. We talked about that in episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the answer is that the Jordan family's dealings with this have been really secretive. Michael did not want to testify. He did not want to show up at court. So they basically had a stipulation um, where the prosecution and the defense agreed to what Michael Jordan would testify to. Um, and the family hasn't talked about it since the time. That this happened. So, you know, I just think whether they did or didn't, um, I think that, that they believe the right people are in jail. They basically just let the prosecution handle it from what we know. There could have been much more going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. But uh, certainly I have no idea if they've donated blood or DNA. or And, you know, th- th- think about the fact that the person who would have asked them for that would have been the prosecution. Um, not that, I mean, they're not going to give it to the defense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're not going to help the side that you think is trying to get your dad's killer off or your husband's killer off. Um, and the defense didn't, I mean, the prosecution didn't think they needed it as far as they knew open and shut Daniel Green and Larry Demery did this and that's it. So I don't think there's like a ton of reason for the prosecution to ask for it. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, I'm, I guess everybody grieves. Well, I guess I know everybody grieves differently. Um, and the Jordan family's way of kind of getting through this was to be kind of hands offish um, and just kind of let it play out, let the law do what they have to do, um, and then don't really get involved in much of it. Uh, but I will say, though, that their participation um, in this case uh, may have been secretive, but that, that adds to the thoughts on conspiracy. Yeah. Um, them being so secretive, and I'm and I'm not, you know, blaming them or this is. I'm just saying the to state the facts. If you don't actively participate or give evidence or testify or anything like that, people are gonna think things. Um, that's just the way people are. Well, I think um, having been in the criminal justice system that. My experience in dealing with cases where someone's been murdered or seriously injured or or sexually assaulted is that, you know, the family believes the prosecution and what the police and the prosecution tell them. And a lot of times they're happy to just let the prosecution handle it and just Mm -hmm. sort of stay in the background. And especially, you know, we said in the first episode, 1993 was the height of Be Like Mike fame. I mean, there was no one bigger in the world. And and Kyle Swenson said, you know, it was an absolute circus down there waiting for Michael to show up. And Mm -hmm. so he didn't want any part of that. And, you know, his father just died and you know who wants to go to court and have to stand there and have everybody gawk at you i mean if it, if it was if it was me i'm just making this personal if it was me and it was my father um i definitely would want to know 
and have as much information as possible um, because it will make me personally feel better to have that information. I, I can imagine having so many unanswered questions in my head because I didn't get involved or I didn't ask, you know, any any questions. But do you think um, they think there's unanswered questions? I don't. I mean, I typically find that even in cases where, like, DNA exonerates someone, the families still believe that the prosecution got the right guy and that the DNA was just messed up or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think once you decide those are this is the guy that did it, I think it's really difficult for a family to then decide the prosecution got it wrong. I think that to them is like almost as painful as going through it the first time. I only can go by what they have said out in public. And um, the uh, we referenced the uh, Oprah Winfrey interview Michael did um, after he retired. And he, from what he was saying in that interview, th- it didn't really matter much to him about the details. To him, his father was gone. Yeah. That was it. None of the us of the details mattered. And I understand that kind of way of thinking that no matter what happens in terms of messed up DNA or uh, law proceedings and all that other junk, his dad's gone. Yeah. So I get it to that degree that no matter what happens or what information comes out, he's still without a, a, a father. Um, and his mom is still without a husband. Uh, so I get that to a certain degree, but just for me personally, knowing how people are, if if I'm not in this situation at all, if I wasn't involved in it at all, I would want to make that, especially being such a public figure, I would want to make sure that without a doubt, I didn't have or any of my dealings had anything to do with my father uh, being murdered. Yeah. Um, finally, James wants to know um, if it's true that Daniel Green was wearing James Jordan's pants to the trial um, and why a defense attorney would allow that to happen. So, OK, I went and looked this up mm-hmm. and actually at trial, Larry Demery accused Daniel Green of wearing James Jordan's pants to the trial. Here's the thing. <laughs> James Jordan was, when they found him, he was, you know, he had been in a swamp for like 30 days. He had on a shirt. He had on a pullover. Presumably he had his pants on. I mean, neither one of them in their testimonies talk about undressing him in any way. And we know that the, the guy who transported the body to the coroner's office or to the funeral home buried the shirt because it smelled so bad that he couldn't stand it. That's weird to me. It is super weird. That's weird. Was something, was, was he okay? That guy? Yeah. I don't know. Like, nothing was, like, like mentally. Because, like, <laughs> if, if something smells right, you throw it in the trash. Why would you well, dig a yard. hole and bury it? Dude, it's South Carolina. I don't know. That was my. That was when when I saw that detail. I was like, "There was, there's no way this guy is okay, hundred percent." Like, it's like what a dog does, right? Bury something <laughs> right. Again, not not to make light of any of this, but that that detail was just really weird to me. It is super weird. Um, but my point is that if the shirt smelled really bad, I'm guessing the pants didn't smell great either. Right. I don't know how Daniel Green would have even gotten those pants. Right. I mean, because they were on the body, right? It's mm-hmm. not like he, you know, not like they turned all the stuff over to Daniel Green afterwards. Yeah. And then I would imagine that, you know, the guy also who the, the coroner washed the shirt before he gave it to the guy who buried it in the backyard. So it smelled awful. <laughs> so I feel like if Daniel Green was wearing James Jordan's pants to the trial, people would have known. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, it was. Uh, did you see the video, the homemade rap video? Yes, that he was seeing. I remember seeing it at the time. It was, it was very poorly. Yes, done. It was really weird. Um, he certainly had all the stuff on. Um, you see him flashing it in in the video, and it's just him. And uh, when before I thought like it was kind of like produced and no no and no stuff no. like that. It was a bunch of other people. No, it, he just had basically. It, it looked like what what could happen today, when when somebody gets their chain stolen or something or something stolen, and then they want to post it on social media. Yeah. It was kind of it, it had that feel to it, right? Like it was 2019, just different visuals. <laughs> um, you know what's really weird that we haven't talked about too is that one of the you know we talked about um, Daniel Green's attorneys at trial. One was a public defender named Angus Thompson, and the other one was a guy named Woodbury Bowen. Mm-hmm. Woodbury Bowen got in trouble because, and one of the things that keeps coming up in this case as well is that he made some kind of deal with Daniel Green for representation, like. Like Woodbury Bowen owned a studio and like he wanted rights to Daniel Green's lyrics and he was going to give him time in the studio in exchange or like something weird like that that just shouldn't have been involved in a murder trial Mm -hmm. in any way. Um, So that's just a little tidbit that keeps coming up again in these um, motions where we're talking about ineffective assistance of counsel. It's like, what what was that all about? You're trying to like I mean, the case hasn't even gone to trial yet and he's already trying to profit off the lyrics of a guy who's facing the death penalty. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was so messed up. Yeah, that sound, that's really crazy. Yeah. Um, okay, so Brian wants to know uh, where Daniel Green's case currently stands and if Larry Demery has any chance of being paroled. Uh, so here's what happened. Um, what Larry, what Daniel Green was trying to do was to have, to get the judge to give him a new evidentiary hearing. And at the hearing, he wanted to put forth all these evidentiary facts that have come to light since his trial. So... Um, Connie Brayboy saying that Larry Demery confessed to her. Um, the fact that Jennifer Elwell uh, says she would testify now that there was no blood in the car. All the people who said that they didn't know Larry Deese was Hubert Deese's son and they didn't know that was the first phone call. Uh, you know, the fact that the shirt has different bullet holes in it, all those kinds of things. And then it, at the end of the evidence you're hearing, hopefully the judge, based on that, would award him a new trial. The judge denied the motion for an evidentiary hearing, which was really shocking to a lot of people who have covered this case because it's not just, you know, oh, the blood evidence. You know, it's not just the hole in the shirt. It's not just Hubert Larry Deese. It's all these things together. Mm -hmm. And so it, it feels like at the very least, maybe you deny a motion to a new trial saying all these things don't really add up to enough for a new trial, but you at least got to hear the evidence. So now what on appeal, basically the, the appellate court has to find that in denying his motion for an evidence you're hearing, the court abused its discretion. That's a really high standard to meet. So the, the, the uh, possibility that he'll get a new trial, it just got like way slimmer. Uh, Julie does knows all the legal stuff. <laughs> Um, all my legal knowledge comes from Law and Order <laughs> and The it's, Wire. It's actually not a bad way to get, I mean, hey, I learned a ton of stuff from Law and Order before I even went to law school and the OJ trial. Yeah. Um, but what comes up for the person that isn't in, you know, law or anything like that is there's a just legally in how things should be done and organized to prove uh, guilt. Um, instead of presumed guilt, all for me going through this case was all kind of messed up. It's like, okay, even if Daniel Green did do it, 
the state and the police, there was so much going on with the coroner's office, the uh, the uh, the uh, the blood testing. Yes, FBI. The FBI. There was it, it, there was so much, so many mess ups and so many issues with each one of those uh, uh, people that to me it was enough to say I can't, I can't, I don't know if he did it. Right. It, it was so so many issues going on. Everybody's just accepting the word of. I mean, that's why we have the system of checks and balances. Um, just throughout our law system, um, the issues in uh, the corruption in the police office, the connections from from drug dealers, Larry Deese, um, uh, to the police offices, the just the the amount of that just coming together is like how can you really say he did it? Well, and here's the thing, Tony. You know, we talked to Johnson Brett, we talked to to Hugh Rogers, and they both say all the evidence, all the physical evidence pointed to Daniel Green. Mm-hmm. But they're really what are, what physical evidence are you talking about? There really isn't any. Right. There's no blood in the car. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There's um the basically they keep talking about the fact that. Daniel Green had the, you know, the uh, the all-star ring and the White Sox hat. But that points to robbery. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily point to murder. And if you want to talk, if you want to say, you know, well, they've got his stuff. They committed the murder. Then you've got to point the finger equally at Larry Demery because mm-hmm. he's the one that said they both were standing right there. Daniel Green says, I had nothing to do with this. He just showed up later with the body. Um, so. When I hear people say, well, the physical evidence pointed to Daniel Green, I don't know what they're talking about. Because mm-hmm. at this point, when you throw out the blood evidence, which, I mean, if you shoot someone at point blank range with a thirty-eight, it feels like there should be Some blood splatter. and stuff all over the dashboard, the steering wheel. But there was nothing, not mm-hmm. even microscopic traces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't. So now to me. There is nothing to back up Larry Demery's story. Um, can I ask you this? In your opinion, working in law, um, I, I don't know if it's different in the South or in terms of moralities. That if is is the finding the person and finding them guilty more important than the process of making sure you do everything right legally? Does okay? We we know we have this guy. Um, the evidence is a bit janky, but we don't care as long as we find the guy and put him in, in prison. I think that's everywhere. I don't think that's just in the South. Mm. I mean, that's sort of, you know, I used to have cops say when I was a public defender, um, well, if he didn't do this, he did something else. You know, mm. and, and that was always really upsetting to me to hear. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, who don't care what the process is as long as you find the guy that they think did it guilty. And that's my issue with the Adnan Syed case from Serial, with Stephen Avery's case from Making a Murderer. It's it's not that I don't think they did it, mm-hmm. but I don't think they got a fair trial. And it's the exact same thing with Daniel Green. I have no idea who did it, mm-hmm. but he didn't get a fair trial. Um, and, and that's sort of where I keep getting stuck in this case. And that, I mean, that... That sucks. Yeah. That, like, even though this this per, this person may have done it, or you feel like this person has done it, or anybody, um, there's still a way to go about it in the system, and you aren't you you aren't God. You can't just place guilt on somebody without proving it under our system. That's the way it works, and it it, it sucks that people choose 
that over finding the right way to do it, even though even though they even if they feel like they're doing the right thing by putting a bad person uh, in prison. Um, for me, it's just if I was a, a, a cop, and again, I'm not a cop, so I'm not under that pressure of finding the guys uh, that commit crimes and making sure they go to, like, I, I assume there's a lot of pressure that goes into that, but if it's not done the right way, I mean, how can you how can you live with that? Well, you know, one of the things, too, I was in DuPage County working as a defense attorney during the Rolando Cruz trial, which I don't know if you've heard about, but he was accused of kidnapping Janine Nicarico out of, she was seven years old, out of her bedroom in Naperville. And Rolando Cruz went to jail and was on death row for many years. Uh, and eventually DNA evidence exonerated him and found that Brian Dugan actually was the guy who, you know, kidnapped and murdered her. But the prosecutors and the police in that case kept saying, well, maybe they did it together. Maybe Rolando, because they were so convinced that it was Rolando Cruz that even when the DNA evidence excluded him, they were still convinced that somehow he was involved. And I think getting that kind of tunnel vision is really dangerous to the entire system. You know, Kyle Swenson said in episode one that, the justice system in this country is not built to fix its mistakes. And I think that's exactly right. And by the way, Kyle's got a book out right now on wrongful prosecutions, which um, I'm looking forward to reading when I go on vacation. So um, I think he's exactly right. There really is no good method other than having the people who heard the case in the first place or who prosecuted it in the first place come out and say, I made a mistake. So it's like the honor system. If you can't get them to say they think they made a mistake or the judge to say, I made a mistake, then you're kind of screwed. Yeah, if you can't if you can't admit that okay, we may not have done this this correctly, how can you be trusted? Um, the corruption case, Operation Tarnished uh, badge. Tarnish badge. There's a reason why that happens. It's again checks and balances. So people already have issues with trusting the authorities and the justice system already. Don't give them you know more evidence into not trusting you. The system fails sometimes, and it's it's okay to admit that. Uh, it just seems like in this case, they were adamant on we'd done things the right way. They were yeah. a great state's prosecution. We do everything correctly and by the book and stuff like that. But the more you more you read into this case, it's like, no, you don't. Yeah, you did a lot of stuff wrong. Um, as for whether or not Larry Demery is going to get paroled, because of a screw-up in the way he was sentenced, he wound up being eligible for parole, even though he wasn't supposed to be. He was supposed to get life as well. So he's he's got the opportunity, I guess, to be paroled. But realistically, whether or not a, a parole board is going to parole the guy who was involved in the killing of Michael Jordan's father, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I find that doubtful. No. Um, Next question comes from Stylin' and Profiling on Twitter. He wants to know if it's true that Daniel Green was wearing a Jordan jersey when he committed the crime. We've got pictures of <laughs> Daniel Green at the party the night of James mm-hmm. Jordan's murder, and he's not wearing a Jordan jersey. Yeah. <laughs> he's wearing like a, he's got a White Sox hat on, but uh-huh. he's wearing like a, just like a striped shirt. So I don't think that's true. Yeah, yeah that would be really messed up. That would be really, <laughs> be really messed, messed up. Messed up. Um, but it, it's not. It's not like out of the realm of possibility. Michael Jordan is was the biggest athlete in the world then, so it wouldn't have been out of the No, but as far as we know, unless there, he went and changed at some point, which he doesn't say he did. That would have been really creepy. Yeah, he's, he's got like a <laughs> different color shirt on. Um, Michael wants to know if we have our own theories about what happened in the case and if we think the theories about James Jordan being murdered because of Michael's gambling debts are credible. So we went through earlier mm-hmm. the uh, the rumors, the conspiracy theories, 
Um, I definitely have an idea of what I think happened. It doesn't involve gambling or anything along those lines. I think we'll probably at the end, we'll probably talk maybe about what our conclusions are at mm-hmm. the end of the case. But um, I don't think that this was premeditated in any way. Uh, yeah. Uh, before doing this podcast, um, along with everybody else, you know, in Chicago, and I've heard just recently a couple podcasts that I listened to, they kind of discussed it that people still firmly believe Michael's uh, gambling had something to do with this. Um, now that I'm in this case, I don't I don't think so. Um, and I'm a huge conspiracy person. I know you are. Um, does Michael have a gambling? It's not an issue because he's rich. Right. He's not going to lose anything. Exactly. Um, but does he like betting and gambling and, and, and that adrenaline rush? Absolutely. Um, did he owe people money? Absolutely. Um, I, I just think this it, that coincide with this is just it's too many. It's it's random. It, well, it's, it's random. It's, it's a conspiracy so I theory. I don't know if I can piece those together. Yeah, as a conspiracy theory, it sucks, too, because it's like, oh, Michael owed, owed money to the mob or to mm-hmm. this guy or that guy. So they killed his father. Well, like, who did? Right. I mean, and how does that relate to Daniel Green and Larry Demery and the stories they told? And why would they implicate themselves if someone else actually, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like people skip over the details because it's easy just to say, oh, the mob killed Michael Jordan's dad because of his gambling debts. And mm-hmm. not only that, why would you kill your golden goose? I mean, clearly Michael had no intentions of stopping gambling anytime soon. Yeah, he still does it. Right. So <laughs> why would you, you know, send a message like that to someone who is going to keep making money for you down the road. It, it just the whole thing makes no sense to me. Yeah. I mean the 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 NBA suspension conspiracy theory makes more sense yes. than it connecting to uh James Jordan's murder. Um I still I don't know about that. I don't know if Michael look, to me the most competitive person in sports history retires at the top of, you know, at the top of his power. I've always had issues with that, um, knowing how competitive uh, Michael is, um, that he will just step on your throat and just leave it there. So I've always had issues with that. Um, but in terms of the James Jordan stuff, I don't think uh, anything connects there. I can't get from A to B on that. You know what I mean? That's just where, like, it's like, it's like blah, 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 so blah, 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 blah. But then nothing in the middle makes any sense. Yeah. That's where, that's, Okay. Uh, so we agree on that. Um, Erica asks if we've gotten blowback from listeners or the Jordan family due to the subject of the podcast. We haven't. Um, the pers- the people we did get blowback from were the <laughs> NBA. And, and here's, so here's a little bit on how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. When we made this first episode, Tony put in amazing amounts of audio. It sounded fantastic. You guys got the, the skeleton version yes, of what it was. Because, Some people have heard the original. Though. Right. Some so after we made the original, um, Entercom said, all right, you got to go and you have to get permission for every single bit of audio that you use. So we had to start going back to people and asking, can we use this? Can we use that? And I feel like it's sort of a a courtesy thing in radio. Like, hey, do you mind if we use this audio? And people Mm -hmm. always say yes. But this time people said no. no. And one of the people that said no was the NBA was really like, well, have you talked to Michael about this? Have you? And so the NBA wouldn't let us use the final call for the Bulls winning the championship in 93 mm-hmm. unless we got Michael Jordan's permission to use it. Mm-hmm. Even though it's been played on the station probably thousands of times. Yeah. So that was the only place we got a little bit of blowback. There were there were some um 
there were some people who covered Michael and his dad during those times in 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 the city locally that didn't want to do it um, because of fear of angering Michael or um, not really seeing the vision of this podcast and what we were trying to do. And that may be on my part of not being uh, not adequately enough explaining what we were trying to achieve here. Um, so that may be on my end. Um, but I thought I was pretty clear about what we were trying well, to do here. So that, that I was kind of taken aback by that, that some people were like, no, nah, I don't want to be a part of well, that. Well, and the people that we were asking to talk about Michael and his father who knew them was intended to keep James Jordan center right. And this. We don't want this to be a podcast about Daniel Green and Larry Demery or, the, or whoever the murderers are. We mm-hmm. wanted it to be about James Jordan. And so... We wanted people to talk about their relationship. I mean, Les Grobstein was telling me the other night, like, you know, he was an absolute gentleman in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we wanted to hear about James Jordan. So we weren't asking him to come on and, like, trash the family or anything. We wanted to hear what he was like. And so I was really grateful to Cheryl Ray Stout, Mm -hmm. who knew him, coming on and talking about how funny he was and what a great guy he was and how modest. And, you know, he seems like a really genuinely lovely person. Yeah, I was very, very appreciative of Cheryl. Um, I've known Cheryl probably almost as long as I've been in radio. Uh, She was one of, like, the first guests I've booked uh, for a show, Dean Davis show. Um, And she's been nothing but nice to me. Yeah, she's Um, great. And she has so much history. Um, in terms of her her Chicago knowledge and Chicago sports knowledge, and I, I think uh, we got the most we got a lot out of her, you know, in terms of just humanizing James Jordan. That he wasn't just a piece in a conspiracy, yeah. or just a dead body, you know, as they found in, in a swamp. Like he was a person, he right. was a human being, um, and she showed that in her answers, uh, and it it it, it really. It really humanized him, and, and I think people really enjoyed that aspect in episode one. I, I, I know I did. I, I loved hearing the stories about him and stuff. Okay, um, Gary, Jeff, and Rachel, wanted, okay, they all sent us questions about Larry Deese, and basically they wanted to know, what's the deal with that guy? <laughs> I mean, here's the deal with Larry Deese. He was the—I hate the word illegitimate, but that's what they keep using in newspapers. So he was the illegitimate son of the sheriff. Well, he, did, he wasn't claimed by his old Yes, man. he was a non-marital child, as yeah. we would say in family law. Of the sheriff, Hubert Stone, who was uh, allegedly corrupt. People (laughs) testified under oath in federal corruption trials that he took kickbacks from drug dealers. Uh, Larry Deese was also a drug dealer and probably enjoyed the protection of the police department. Um, He rode around with the cops. Mark Locklear was his big buddy. He was the person in charge of the Jordan investigation. And after the fact, all these guys said, oh, I had no idea that Larry was Hubert, the Hubert Stone's son. He was the son of the sheriff. I had no idea that he was involved in drug dealing. I had no, you know, and that's, I didn't know he knew Larry Demery. And that's all really hard to believe. Um, And the fact that he worked with Larry Demery a mile down the road from where James Jordan's body was uh-huh. found, um, and that Larry Deese was the first phone call they made from James Jordan's car. But they didn't find it necessary to question him right. on anything. <laughs> right. So if you see the affidavits, which we're, we're adding show notes now, and you can go look at the filings, and you can see the affidavits, and you know all the people they ask about Larry Deese, the defense asked, they're like, yeah, we probably should have investigated him, but you know, no harm, no foul. And it's kind of like, I think there might have been a foul. I think he was kind of a big maybe piece to this. Yeah. So his his role in all of this is unknown. Um, mm-hmm. And we're still hoping to get to talk to his attorney. Um, we're trying to track him down and see if we can get him to talk. Um, but it, it's definitely sketchy. 
yeah, to say the least, it's sketchy. Uh, it's his his role in all of this is is a piece of the puzzle that is still shadowy, and uh, having his account of what happened, I'll be if he was lying or not, it still would have been there. There's there's a he wasn't just gonna flat out just lie just on everything. He would have said something that would have made something clearer, um, and we were denied that. Well, this case was denied that because they didn't seem deem it necessary to do that because of his connection to the uh, the to the sheriff. Yeah. And there's this whole issue with, well, the phone, you know, he never picked it up. It was a less than one minute call. It, you know, it, likely it just rang out or his voicemail picked it up. But that's not what what was said isn't even the issue. The issue is. They've got a body, they've got a car with a dead body in it, and the first person they call oh, is Larry Dees. I mean, yeah. that's the issue, just that they made the call. Yeah, I mean, they, could could there have been a robbery ring um, that they were all, hey, we just picked up this this guy, you know, either they killed him or he was dead when we got here, and we, we got stuff, what do you want us to do with it? Uh, he may have been the ringleader because of his connection. Uh, to all of that, just say, hey, bring it here, bring it there. I'll pick it I'll talk to you later or something like that. Um, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Okay, finally, Kyle reached out on Twitter and asked if we have a topic for season two picked out yet. We do not. No, this not yet. This has been a sprint from day one. <laughs> we wanted to have like three or four episodes in the can when it launched. Mm-hmm. But because of all the issues with audio, we didn't get to do that. So it's been like a weekly sprint from like, <laughs> you know, that end of one episode to doing a new one so if you guys have ideas feel yeah. free to send them our way yeah, send, send them our way we are um i will say in season two i, I don't think we want to do mur- we don't, murder um, murder if, most foul yeah. you don't like murder yeah i mean it's cool i love murder yeah it's cool it's interesting people will always be interested in murder but i, I think this podcast is, is is more than that i think it's a great storytelling platform and we can tell stories other than Murder. But we'll consider your murder stories. Yes, it will be considered. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I, I just would like to, to, to spread that out a bit. I'd like to stick with murder, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, all right, well, we've got some exciting news. Uh, we're definitely going to do more than six episodes this season. We mentioned earlier that Daniel Green and his attorney both declined to take part in the podcast while his motion for an evidentiary hearing was pending. Now that that motion has been denied, we believe we're going to get the chance to talk to both Daniel and his attorney, Chris Mama in the coming weeks, so make sure you stay tuned for that. And with spring break falling for some of us next week, our next episode will be two weeks from today, so we hope you'll tune in for that one. We've got plenty more to talk about. The score behind the headlines is written and researched by me, Julie DeCaro, and our executive producer is Tony Gill. New episodes are posted Monday of each week on Radio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Julie DeCaro, at Tony Gill, and at 670thescore. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.